0: Hello, I'm Chef Freddy Batsui. I'm the executive chef at the National Museum of the American Indian, and I'm Navajo. And this is Toasted Sister.
1: I'm um, Freddie Batsui. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your position over there as executive chef at uh, Mitzitam, right?
0: Yes, Mitzitam, which mm-hmm. is uh, Delaware for Let's Eat, if mm. anybody's wondering what that means. <laughs> so I'm in charge of um, as far as planning the menus, in charge of the cooks, in charge of the sous chefs, and in charge of the line and how the food gets uh, prepared, served, and you know, as far as quality is concerned. So That's, that's my job there, and I tend to not think of it that way because it's such a fun job and I appreciate you know every day when I'm there just um, only because I have complete autonomy on what I want to create and how I want to create it. And, of course, knowing that it's the uh, National Museum of the American Indian, the menu does have to be relevant as far as what Native people have been eating for uh, hundreds of thousands of years. I think one thing people tend to overlook is uh, the fact that palates – were tremendously different a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, to today. If I were to create a menu that was based on complete ancestral food, it would not be as um, delicious, you know, for lack of a better term. Mm. So that's when um, acids come into play, like vinegar, lemon, limes that our palates have grown to appreciate. And a little bit of sweetness, you know, people tend to think native food is is sugarless. But when it comes to like agave nectar, or prickly pear fruit, or maple syrup, those those are all sugars. Um, you know, there's like this notion that native people only got their sugar from granulated sugar when the year when Europeans arrived, mm-hmm. but that that's not the case. The sweet taste has always been there. So developing these recipes and the menu to accommodate what's traditional, and allowing us to appreciate how they possibly could have tasted. Years back, it, it's it's a very fun job. It's like a, a detective of food type of thing, and mm. I, I, I I really like it.
1: Awesome. Mm. All right. So you were talking about stations a little while ago. Can you tell me a little more about those stations and how you're kind of putting these foods in categories there at Mits, Mits Mitsutam? Yes, Mitsutam.
0: <laughs> the categories currently are based on region. So we have the Great Plains, South America, the Pacific Northwest, the. Uh, Northwest, what's the other one? Oh, Northern Woodlands mm-hmm. and uh, Mesoamerica. It's funny that I'm I'm there every day and I can't remember the names. <laughs> um, but each uh, each station re- represents those particular areas. But one concern to me that I constantly get is how come certain people aren't represented in, in 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 those regions for example there's no southwest like you know for, for I, i'm from new mexico so I, I i think the same thing it's like hey there's no southwest station mm-hmm. or um especially like the southeast like Seminole tribes they um tend to think what about us and on top of that south america cannot be represented in a six item menu mm-hmm. so um Right now, that's how the stations are set up, and I, I think it's a, a, a very good idea. However, one thing that I've learned working at the museum, it was kind of more—it was like a fluke—to create the stations. Someone just had this idea to say, "Let's let's try this," and um, I, I think it did great for for as long as it did, and for for twelve years, and people still flock there to eat. And all in all, it's a business, yeah. right? So. Um, we have to have two soups. We have to have certain amount of appetizer, certain amount of entree. So that's um, kind of the way the menus based. That's the way the um, the sales are based. And I think it's a it's a really good idea and a good way to uh, convey storytelling through food because the, the cafe is not viewed as a cafe. It's it's viewed more like a edible exhibition of of, of native um, foods. One thing that I've learned to understand is. Rather than uh, talking about traditional dishes and traditional foods, it's fundamentally a cafe to highlight the indigenous ingredients. Mm-hmm. So what these ingredients are capable of doing and what, they were cap- what, what they've done in the past and what we can do with them in the future. So um, I think one misconception is people say we come here to eat traditional native food, but it's really to highlight the ingredients that came from the Western Hemisphere. And, um, that's what I'm trying to, um, reiterate with, you know, starting there. I've been there uh, tomorrow. I'll be a year. Wow. Uh, uh, Yeah, August 25th, I make a year, so.
1: (laughs) Wow, wow. Well, uh, congratulations on that position. Um, And you just mentioned that, um, you know, it's a business. It's a business. You can't get maybe too specific with um, certain, uh, you know, tribal foods that are specific to tribes. But, um, you know, just that that, uh, word there, business. um, Do you think there's like maybe a conflict or some kind of, um, uh, yeah, conflict between business and making money? and, you know, supporting your family that way and also trying to really show that traditional food. Um, you know, I wonder if other chefs maybe think of that when they're doing their thing out there. Um, you know, have to make money, but at the same time, you have to develop the menu in a certain way that's going to really draw in everybody. <laughs>
0: oh, that, that's actually a really, really good question. Uh, right now, a lot of uh, chefs, especially indigenous chefs, are contemplating and and debating and talking about this whole idea of of appropriation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a big thing when it comes to art, artifacts, um, certain uh, traditional imagery, uh, you know, as far as fashion is concerned. Mm
1: -hmm. Movies and stuff, yeah. yeah. So
0: it kind of trickled down to food. I actually had this discussion at the museum with, with a few chefs that came to visit me, and I do believe that there is a fine line with uh, respecting certain ingredients that don't have the capacity of industry. Whereas, for example, if I want a um, specific ingredient, say, from Oaxaca, and there's no industry for it, it it's, it's it's traditional families go out and farm, don't have an industry. For okay. a choya bud from Arizona? Son- Sonoran Desert, oh. they have uh, small groups— Nonprofits who pick the choyo buds and sell yeah. them, but it's not mass produced. So for me as a chef, I'd, I sell these products as a, as a chef, but I make sure that they uh, get the allotted appropriate um, sale. Mm-hmm. I don't um, undersell the provider. I you know provide as much as I possibly can do for 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 those organizations. Uh, for example, I'm not going to go out into the desert and pick these choya buds because I'm I'm dead terrified of rattlesnakes yeah. and uh, <laughs> cactus and wind. So mm-hmm. I think when these products are sold because they're pretty expensive, some sometimes they can reach up to sixty dollars a pound. Mm-hmm. It's something that I'm not. Um, I'm not going to take lightly. And I I think it's a a, a sense of sharing and telling and to sell these ingredients in the museum uh, cafe, I think is is probably the most appropriate place because number one, um, sales of the uh, museum uh, cafe, you know, fund the museum as well. So it's kind of benefiting that whole um, cycle of how the museum gets funded. But if I owned my own restaurant and I sold these particular items, I think that's where it, it... There's that fine line that draws between making much, much more money off of indigenous ingredients where, you know, certain people are not making the money that they should be getting while I'm reaping the benefits, you know, somewhere across the country. And I think that's where that um, line is drawn severely that native chefs uh, truly understand Mm -hmm. as opposed to non-native chefs.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. The whole talk of appropriation yeah. is still, um, you know, circulating around. We're still just really putting a lot of different thought and a lot of different thoughts um, coming from, um, you know, different areas across the native food, um, you know, world. So yeah. it's, it's still a developing... Um, Concept. It's still something we're still arguing about, yeah. uh, you know, on Facebook, on um, you know, different social media platforms. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot to talk about when it comes to uh, appropriation in food. Um, but uh, l- let's take it back a little bit. Uh, you grew up in New Mexico. You say, where are you from? Well, Who I have are a you? very interesting
0: <laughs> background, and um, I was born in Utah, and um, my parents lived in Dallas at the time. We ended up moving back to Utah a little about a year after I was born, less a little less than a year after I was born. And my father got a job in, um, in, in a small community called Montezuma Creek. It's, it's just on the San Juan River. And we lived there for about four or five years. And we relocated to a small community in Arizona called Loop. And he worked for a natural gas company. And uh, we lived there for about three, four years, and then he got transferred down to uh, a small community called Topac, Arizona, which is right on the border of Arizona and California. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we spent um, a little less than a year there, and we moved back into New Mexico, north of Gallup, a small community called uh, Tohatchi, New Mexico. And we spent very little time there, about six, seven months, and we moved back to just outside of Flagstaff we moved everywhere. We we pretty much jumped from town to town along I-40. Mm-hmm. So I call I-40 my home. <laughs> so when I uh, moved to Albuquerque uh, in ninety in 99 uh, to come to UNM, I, I always tell people I lived in almost every town west of the Sandia Mountains all the way to California. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, that's my home. I, I, I have many different memories um, spanning from uh, Albuquerque all the way to California. Yeah. And it, it was an important thing that happened to me because I pretty much I, I'm not gonna you know boast a l- I'm gonna boast a little but I think out of all of my siblings I was the most aware about the cultural differences mm-hmm. um, moving to different areas how different people uh, uh, acted how different people ate uh, how different people communicated growing up as a kid and moving around so much one just has to start the conversation. You can't wait for people to talk to you. Otherwise, you're the quiet one. You're the weird one. And you know, back there was no anti-bullying anything when I was growing up. Yeah. So I had to try to, you know, it was it was sort of survival of the fittest as as a kid trying to not be the one thrown in the trash can or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just such a a, a, a hard time, but I, I enjoyed it because I got to meet so many people, uh-huh. and I think. The upbringing that I had, for my the personality that I have, because I'm I'm able to, um, you know, tell stories in public. I'm able to do food demos in public. I'm able to, I'm able just to communicate with, with a lot of people at, at the same time, and I'm not afraid to do that. Back in the early 2000s, I was in Windorock, Arizona, and we were uh, given an assignment in anthropology. I was I was in college, and I went home, and we were told we have to. Figure something that's really amazing about borders. So I went to this place called Sabanito. Um, it's just right outside of Window Rock on the New Mexican border side. Yeah, and then I went back to Window Rock, and I noticed that the concept of chili mm. was was a, a big issue because people who were on the New Mexican side they ate the Blake's log burger with green chili. It was kind of like the more most popular burger to buy, yeah. whereas the majority of the people from the Arizona side would get the burger with, without the chili, and um, having the jalapeno was more popular on the Arizona side. Now, I'm not saying this is a general, you know, overbroad, black and white, set in stone, <laughs> Arizonans don't eat red chili. What I'm, yeah. what I'm saying is what was more culturally popular. Mm. So when I went back and I wrote a paper about that, and we were talking about how a, a physical border like... Um, the Arizona-New Mexican border divided the Chile culture. And it was a fun paper that I wrote, but it it, it led me to believe that regardless of where people live, how they live, if if a border is a mountain, if it's a hill, if it's a a, a grassy knoll or a river, people on either side will have different uh, cultural ways of eating, cultural ways of uh, farming. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, something that I've realized moving around so much. And it just kind of naturally led me to um, study culture, analyze how people practice their cultural ways, and, and, you know, in the same environment. But there's different meanings to it. That's how I um, regurgitated through cooking. I guess <laughs> yeah. that's a bad word to use when it comes to cooking. <laughs> right. But um, uh, just to reiterate or to summarize everything as my yeah. career, um, through as you know, cooking was just that thing that I always loved to do. But what got me into cooking. As a kid, was uh, my fo- my older brother was the star runner in in our family. Like he was the star athlete in our family, and and mm-hmm. every rural person knows that if you have a star athlete in school, encourage that because that's uh free. That's most likely a college scholarship. So uh, my parents were. Uh, invested so much in in, in, in his uh, talent. So they drove all over the state of Arizona for cross-country um, events. And they take my younger brother and my younger sister and my older sister went to a, a private school. So I was the only one home. Mm-hmm. Back in fifth grade, I'd stay home. I'd, you know, wake up and play with the neighbors, my mm-hmm. friends, and I go back inside when it was time to eat. And uh, I'd be hungry. So eventually I got sick of making the sandwiches or sick of mm-hmm. making certain things. And yeah. I started with um, making a, gr- a ground beef patty, like a homemade um, hamburger. And then it kind of gradually moved on. It got to the point to where my mom would say, I could have swore I bought a chicken. And, you know, what I did was I burned it and I threw in the trash. <laughs> because... <laughs> oh, <laughs> so no. it was like a trial and error uh, thing <laughs> on how I learned how to cook. And uh, plus, you know, the... uh PBS cooking shows were, were available at the time, so yeah, it, Great it did, Chefs of the
1: World. Yeah, uh, that was, I think, back in our, our yeah, day. <laughs> that was that was
0: it, and it was it was fun to watch. But I had never aspired to be a chef. Mm-hmm. It was just the best way to express what I've learned and express how I grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there was no there was no other better way to do it because if I was a, a lecturer at a college, it, it wouldn't be as fun to to stand there and and cook something that my my grandmother made or when I go when I went to the Pacific Northwest and I cooked up there, it's not you know, I get to share what I learned from the people from Port Hardy and talk about it. I just it it, it's the proof that I was there. Whereas just telling stories, people are kinda thinking when people catch a fish, they're like, I caught a fish this big, but are you really telling the truth? <laughs> so the cooking demo and explanation of the food is, 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 is my proof of telling people what I've, I've learned and where, where I've been. And it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm still cooking and I'm still learning and it, it, it's really fun. So that's a little bit of my, my background in, in a nutshell
1: yeah um, so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was um, you just came from um, one of the casinos you, you were um, working at one of the casinos on Navajo Nation was that Fire Rock
0: yes the one yeah. outside Gallup yes
1: yeah yeah on I-40 yes <laughs> right off I-40 um, so you were there and I think you were at another one um, but just the, the culinary um, scene within the casinos I mean are you noticing anything there when, when we talking about food, I haven't really noticing, haven't been noticing people talking about the casinos because they all have multiple, you know, cafes and food venues within the casinos. But um, what are are you noticing anything about them? Are they, do they have a hand in this whole native food movement at all?
0: That's a really good question because the casinos, it was explained to me that the uh, native casinos, the culture that the casinos are in right now, are '80s Las Vegas. You give everybody a prime rib, mashed potatoes, and then you know all you can eat shrimp or something, yeah. and the belief is people will come to eat. And um, now, when you go to native casinos, you'll get the buffet. You'll get um, standard things, but the fact of the matter is, is casinos were built for non-tribal members to game at they were built for extra re- re- revenue so when people in their own tribe play at their own casino the money's just going in a circle yeah you know it's, they're not bringing new money in
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm not a business casino expert but that's just <laughs> kind of the way that i have experienced it mm-hmm. so when i worked at the um the casino i um try to bring new ideas to them and i didn't try to radicalize the casino because you can't change people's eating habits overnight. Yeah, people will get upset and people will get angry. What 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 restaurants are doing with hamburgers, for example, mm-hmm. is they're giving people the choice of just a mixed greens, which are like ri- spinach, uh, watercress, arugula. Uh, you know, maybe even like a little bit of radicchio. Just those just those leaf lettuces. Tossed in a small you know light vinaigrette and put on the side of the hamburger mm-hmm. instead of french fries as as an option and so that 's what I introduced to you know as as a side, but what was happening is the servers were coming back and saying uh, they, they don't they want a salad they don't want this mm-hmm. and i said well this this technically isn't a salad it's more of a side item that you get with your burger if you don't want french fries, mm-hmm. so they want the um um, the Romaine with cheese egg and 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 tomato, and you know with a with more ranch dressing than they should be getting, yeah. you know, so trying to teach how restaurants are f- feeding people nowadays was one of the hardest things, mm-hmm. and it caused for a lot of arguments, it caused for a lot of tension and it caused for a lot of misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the fact that. I gave up or anything. It was just it was a battle that I didn't want to fight because I knew I wasn't going to win mm-hmm. because getting rid of all you can eat shrimp was a big deal. <laughs> and I personally don't think anybody needs all you can eat shrimp. Yeah. You know, mm. it, it's it's um, it's it's fun for a day, but not every day, not every week, because I don't know if it's a secret, but all you can eat shrimp is not real shrimp. It's the remnants of, you know, parts of shrimp. It's synthetic, that, that synthetic crab that they sell. And it's battered to look like shrimp. It's very inexpensive. So what I proposed was let's give five pieces of real shrimp with the prime rib. And all I got was everybody's going to want more than five pieces. <laughs> and it's like, well, we're the business. We're the restaurant. As long as we stand behind what we're doing, people will listen and people will believe it. But it it never came through. It it never resonated. And um, it was something that I just, um, I got really tired of fast because the people that work at the casino just did not seem to understand what I was trying to do and the marketing of it all. And just trying to say, like, we have something great here. We have a chance to change the food culture. So if the casinos have this ability because the capital that they have to bring in a better product and sell it for a really good price. So that's kind of something that I couldn't understand why no one was helping me do that. But at the same time, NMAI was my dream job. It was um, offered to me. You know, I had I had good reason to leave, but I'm sure if I didn't have that chance to leave, I probably would have fought a little longer mm-hmm. for for those changes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's always so interesting. Every time I drive down um I-40 to home to Crown Point, um there's about you know, four casinos that you pass and mm-hmm. it, they're all Indian casinos mm-hmm. and they all have their billboards and their, you know, fancy big giant projectors on the side of the road, um, talking about hamburgers and prime rib and all you can eat shrimp and stuff like that. And I'm, you know, the more I'm thinking about all this food and all these native shifts that are available and ready to do, um, you know, stuff with traditional food and flavors. Um, it's just, it just doesn't seem like there's, you know, a, a match there (laughs) a match there or uh unwillingness to invite that kind of food or invite that kind of change into the casinos i mean these are these are big money-making institutions that um you know could really have a hand in um the whole food native food uh movement so We'll see. Um, we'll see what's what. If anybody's gonna, um, you know, be doing anything in the future. But right now, like like you said, it's not very much yeah. that's happening.
0: Well, yeah, I, I definitely have hope. I, I know. I know it is possible, and mm-hmm. I, I'm not bashing the casinos. I'm just state, clearly stating that if 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 you have that ability, use it because you're the you're the outlet. So, I was always brought in to help tribes um, train their staff, tell them this is how to make it healthier, to make it better, to make it uh, cost-effective uh, fundamentally, and also bring in their traditional foods and ingredients and, and, and talk to people about how important that ingredient is to this particular area. So it was, it was, it was a fun time doing that, and they do have the capacity, and I, I still have my fingers crossed for that.
1: Yeah, it'd be great to see that uh, pretty soon, especially uh, back at home on Navajo Nation. Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing I am kind of curious about is Some of this talk about um, like fusion food. Can you maybe just give a definition of fusion food, especially, you know, maybe fusion Native American food? Mm
0: -hmm. Fusion food to me is knowing different things about different cultures Mm -hmm. and combining flavors that just taste great together. Okay. Um, There there are a lot of ingredients globally that um, everybody eats. Uh, for example, one fusion dish that I make is a uh, choya bud pasta salad. Mm-hmm. You know that may that may not be like highly haute cuisine fusion, but we're putting choyabud bud together with pasta, and we're just making uh, your your standard pasta salad, but adding choya bud in it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think those are great ways to have the ingredient because people generally tend to think cactus. I'm not. I'm not going to eat cactus. But um, when you put it in dishes that people are more familiar with, it opens the mind up a little bit more, and that's what I think the purpose of fusion food was for. But now it's, it's it it kind of got out of hand to where it it just people are fusing Japanese food with um, food from India. You know, it just they're they're kind of meshing things together. And you can just drive down any street that has restaurants in any town, and it'll say japanese american or it'll say like up the street there's a mexican greek restaurant um, right. on central and arizona <laughs> and um it's I, I stare at the sign like that's pretty interesting so it's generally what i also think it it's dealing with a lot with the business partners mm-hmm. because they come from different backgrounds they're good at what they do they're good at the restaurant business but they won't give it, give in on what they want to sell so they just end up fusing the food together. <laughs> I, I think that, that's another notion that I re- have for fusion food. But uh, fusion food is, is, should be more of a good thing than a bad thing. But mm-hmm. recently, people tend to think, it's, it's especially when it comes to native food, it um, dilutes the whole process of storytelling. I think the one thing that restaurants don't understand is with, when it comes to native food, that the foods are so seasonal and their time frame of being the best time to eat them are, are very short like fiddleheads yeah they only have like a 6 week window tops even less some 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 places it's 3 weeks so to order all of that product and to bring it into your restaurant it it's going to take somebody who's savvy at timing everything <laughs> so and for you know for the purveyors to get it to bring it in to to use it cuz most restaurants in the US you have to have a purveyor to bring your food and you just can't go outside, pick it and then sell it. (laughs) It's not highly practiced in in the United States. It's practiced in Europe, but not here.
1: Is it like food policy and food safety? Yeah. You you can't do that. Yeah. You know, forage and then bring that into the restaurant and sell it to people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, like wild mushrooms and things like that. You can't, Mm -hmm. you can't do that in in this country. So to get those windows, it's really difficult. So the, Uh, the fusion concept they come up with again less authentic ingredients and then fuse it and they call it something like uh, a new native american cuisine in my opinion i think the term native american cuisine is uh, you know the ultimate of fusion food Mm -hmm. because you know generalizing across the board what is native american you know native american cuisine and if you um put salmon with wild rice and a prickly pear sauce all on one dish. Yeah, that's Native American. But hundreds of years ago, these cultures rarely interacted with one another. And archaeologically speaking, there was no wild rice in the Southwest or there was no wild rice in the Pacific Northwest. So Mm. there really was no interaction of those particular ingredients. So now when we put those together and call it Native American cuisine, it's kind of like the ultimate way of saying this is fusion foods of indigenous peoples of America.
1: That was Freddie Batsui, executive chef at Mitsutam in the National Museum of the American Indian. I'm Mandy Murphy, creator, producer, and host of the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm Navajo, and I live in Albuquerque, where I produce each episode. I spend a lot of hours doing this, and it's a challenge, but it's exciting to get these stories of our indigenous foods out there. So please share these episodes with your friends and family, and let people know that Toasted Sister is the only podcast around that focuses only on indigenous food. For more information, visit the website toastedsisterpodcast.com. You can follow on Facebook and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Andy Murphy. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. Music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Check out his music on Bandcamp and his website, cwion.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N dot